You're listening to the Shifting Our Schools podcast with our host, Jeff Utick. Did you know the Shifting Schools team responds to the requests of listeners like you? The content we share, the questions we ask, the resources we build are inspired by the hundreds of emails, tweets, and Facebook messages we get each month. Do you have a topic or resource you'd love to hear Jeff explore? Head over to our show notes to learn more about ways to be heard. Now, on with the show. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Shifting Our Schools podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman, and I am humbled and honored to be your host for today. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, you know that we are uh, at the conclusion of our special educator author series. The past three episodes, as well as this one, are all part of a series that we are doing that's really our effort to help educators who are thinking about teacher book groups they would like to organize for the coming academic year. And like many of our episodes, this one has a free guide that helps you leverage what you get to listen to in the next hour. So when you head over to shiftingschools.com, when you select the resources tab, when you head into our library, you want to look out for the free guide that's called Fostering Community with Teacher Book Groups. Inside that guide, you'll find resources that are referenced in this episode, and you'll also find frameworks and resources that we have found useful when hosting educator book groups. On today, we have co-authors Heather Dowd and Patrick Green, who are going to be talking both about their book, why it's relevant right now, as well as what the process was like in terms of them teaming up and putting together a book as a group. So we're going to start this episode with a short snippet of the book read to us, courtesy of one of those co-authors, Patrick Green. Enjoy. Know your role. You must remember that as the teacher, your primary goals are to help your students to learn, to think critically and creatively, and be problem solvers. Ultimately, you want your students to function without you. If you teach math, your job is not to solve equations. It is to help students learn to solve equations on their own. The same goes for tech questions in the classroom. You should not be trying to answer all the tech questions. You should be helping students solve those questions on their own. The best way to get comfortable with this is to simply tell your class you are a teacher, not a technology expert. Let them know you are there to help them learn to solve problems for themselves, but you are not going to give them the answers. Although you, do, although you do not have to be a technology expert in the classroom, you do not need to be a Luddite either. A common phrase heard in classrooms and in staff meetings when something goes wrong with the technology is, I'm just not a tech person. Avoid this phrase at all costs, as it sends terrible messages to other teachers and students. It communicates that giving up is okay, or that some people cannot learn new things or understand technology. Today, we are all tech people simply because we need to utilize current tools. We don't need to be computer programmers, but we do need to have the right attitude toward learning new things. A more productive way to deal with the technology failure or frustration in class is to ask your students for help. 
Doing so models the kind of positive attitude about learning new things that you expect from your students. Uh, hello, my name is Trisha Friedman, and I am here today with the incredible Heather Dowd and Patrick Green, uh, who used to be colleagues on the same campus. Sadly, they no longer are, but they are sort of forever colleagues because they're bound by a book that they co-authored together. And they're here today to talk to us a little bit about that book uh, and why it might make for a great staff read or a PLC read as educators are thinking ahead about the books uh, that they might be adding to their PD shelves for the coming academic year. So thank you, Heather and Patrick, for joining us today. Uh, I'm wondering if we can just sort of start this conversation by you giving us the elevator pitch version of the book. Really, in essence, who is this book for and why is it important for that audience, um, given the context of the moment that we are living and learning in? Patrick, you want to give it a shot? Okay. Uh, yeah, here we go. You weren't trained for this. You were not uh, in a teaching program that taught you how to teach when every kid had this powerful entertainment device between you and them. And so you might have a little bit of nervousness around what it's going to look like now, now that this device that can go anywhere in the world and do anything and be very distracting is now stuck between you and every student. But you don't need to be nervous because you're a pro. You have been trained to teach. You have been trained to have good relationships with students and help them to grow. And what this book hopefully will do for you is to give you confidence that actually a lot of the things you've learned and tried and uh, grown into as a teacher, you can just tweak them a little bit for this new environment where there's a lot of possibilities in your classroom. And that blend of sort of, you know, the, the practical strategies or the practical tweaks that you, you said we can make, you know, that in combination with really thinking about the mindset uh, that leverages, I love Patrick that you call it that entertainment device, because, you know, of course it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, in many ways, I think there's power in realizing these devices are a part of our lives and we do want students, learners uh, of all ages to see them as useful um, and I think the, the book really gets to that. What I, what I love about our author series is that we're talking to educator authors. And I know in the classroom, we talk to our students all the time about the power of learning to be an impactful researcher. Um, and you're sort of like living that. So you've got this powerful lived experience to give voice to. And I'm wondering if you might talk to us a little bit about some of the research highs and lows that you experienced or just sort of give us a little bit of a behind the scenes look at what your research process was like. And to make this question even longer, um, you know, were there any moments during that research process, during the, the time in that book, when the book was coming together, that you know, ah, that moment or that insight that I've come across, that's gonna be something I remember five years, 10 years uh, from now. Um, I like the way that you put that, the, the powerful lived experience, because that's, that's basically where this book comes from. Um, so Patrick and I, when we were colleagues at the same school, supporting teachers, um, coaching teachers, we helped our school go one-to-one. -one. So we were both in the middle school. Um, there were a lot of devices around, but they were not one-to-one. -one. Not every student had one. 
so that all happened while we were there. And um, the teacher, obviously, there's a lot of uh, concern when you're making a big change like that. And what we realized is every question that a teacher had for us was about how to manage this device, um, at least in those initial stages. I think those questions slowly morphed into more learning focused, pedagogically focused, pedagogical focused questions. But in the beginning, it was really about, you know, what do I do with this? What do I do if the battery dies? You know, what do I do if a student is off task? Um, and so it seemed like every question was about classroom management. And so when we started pulling this book together, I mean, really, when you go through it, those strategies all come from working with our colleagues. There are things that we worked through together. Um, so we learned from all of the teachers at our school. Um, and we also had an opportunity to visit some other schools in our region um, that had gone one-to-one -one a few years prior. So we learned a lot from them. Um, and that was that was kind of our research experience. It really was a lived a lived thing, a lived experience. Like, how are we going to, what does this look like for us at our school? Um, and that's that's where it came from. And you know, I, I I'm willing to bet a lot of those questions and a lot of those conversations that you were having at that time uh, on that specific campus. Uh, there is some universality to them. And I know that you both have worked with many, many educators outside of that campus. Um, you know, to what extent do you feel like there are themes to those questions or are there questions that you continue to see educators bring to the forefront? And I think they absolutely are the same. It, um, when, when, it, when you boil it down, I think it, it is, I, I'm, I'm a teacher put in an environment that I wasn't trained to be in. And so that's where a lot of my questions come from. And um, you know, it, whether it's iPads or Chromebooks or laptops, it, it really is, um, how am I gonna make this device enhance the learning rather than distract from it? And so that's, I think, the root of a lot of the questions. And, and speaking of those questions, and pointing back to your question about the research process, um, I think I've learned a lot about like design thinking and, and different ways of doing things. Like this book really is a product, uh, not just a book, but a, a product designed for users. And so it actually comes from all of the questions that empathy, right? Like what does your user need? Uh, and I think that was actually part of our process too. Heather and I were writing down all the questions that people were asking uh, and not just in our school, but as you mentioned, like in a number of schools in the region that were doing this all at the same time. And uh, then having to figure out, well, what are the answers to those questions? Some of them we took from observing what other people were doing at other schools and could tell us, uh, this is what we've done. This is how, what worked. This is how, what we tried and didn't work. But other things too, um, we went back into our prior knowledge. And I'm, I'm just going to give a shout out to Thank you, Harry Wong, for the first days of school book that I read, I don't know, 25 years ago, because a lot of, a lot of those things that help you to set up a great environment for students, uh, they're the same things now. We just have to think, well, how does the device also fit into this? So yeah, I hope, I hope that gets to, to that, that we really were designing a product uh, to answer the questions of the people that are experiencing something new. And as I'm listening to both of you kind of describe that process, 
I'm also wondering, you know, it's, it's wonderful when a school does have a coaching team, when it's not just one instructional coach. And I'm wondering even just sort of on that level, um, you know, for yourselves, that sounds like that would have been a great kind of bonding, um, you know, process that really kind of brings a coaching team or partnership together. Like, I, I kind of just wonder if even in setting out on that journey or having that very tangible goal of creating this product, um, you know, if that's kind of a process that you would endorse, you know, folks that have uh, a, a teaching team, maybe you're not coaches, but um, it's a PLC. I wonder even what, um, you know, that co-authorship process offers to you as learning. You know, we talk all the time to our students, hey, collaboration is really important. You need to learn to be able to be an effective member of a team. But yet again, the two of you um, have kind of put yourself back in the shoes of learners and had to, you know, figure out how do we co-author a book? You know, a lot of I, shared Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> well, go I was going to, yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think as a writing teacher, I even pushed back against the idea that you write in community. It's like, well, no, everyone needs to write their own paper. Yeah, we can do some peer editing, but everyone's got to, actually, no, Heather and I wrote this together and um, that's how people do work today. If you're, if you are going to your, boss uh, and saying, hey, here's this thing I worked on all by myself. It's not going to be as good as the one that went through the process of a group with lots of brains on it. And uh, like, like, well, what does that look like in an actual practice? Well, it looks like this. When I got writer's block, I would leave the Google Doc and I would leave a comment that says, Heather, I cannot think of a good story to introduce this bullet point that we both, we both know the bullet point. We could, we could talk about it in front of people on, off the cuff but do you have something that you, I can't think of anything. And the next, uh, I would leave that and I'd come back to the document two days later and Heather would have written out this great thing. And then I was off working somewhere else in the document. Um, and folks, that's how it works. We do rely on each other today to create products, to write books. Um, it's a collaborative world. Yeah, and it, it really is a better book, I think, for having more than one voice. Um, yeah, that, that going into that doc, like being able to just skip around and say, this is a topic I really don't like, and I don't know what to say about it. So I'd skip it. And then I'd come back, same thing. And Patrick would have written this great paragraph. I'm like, oh, that's great. <laughs> it was just, it was really good. Um, I wanted to go back, you asked a question in the last, as part of the last question that I, I did want to um, respond to it. I can't remember exactly what you said, but you said, what is something that will stick with you? And, and I think we've, we've both talked about all of the questions that teachers had. And the thing that will always stick with me through that process of, of learning with our colleagues and, and um, teachers in our school is, I remember we did a, a biggest hopes, greatest hopes, biggest fears workshop before we launched one-to-one. -one. And I had collected all of those biggest hopes and greatest fears in a doc and a couple of years later, after we were well into one-to-one -one and teachers were now focused on learning with the tool versus managing the tool, I found that document and looked through the fears and none of those fears came to pass. And, and so I really think that also kind of informed what we did in the book. You know, we, we stay focused on like, what are the positive strategies? How can you be proactive? Um, but a lot of the fears that we have about devices in the classroom, they just didn't happen. Um, and that will always, always stick with me because I had those fears too. 
And I think, you know, making space for some of that teacher anxiety is so important because you're right. You know, I think anytime we're navigating change, you know, there's research that shows if you are a classroom teacher, what is it? It's like thousands of decisions you're making every single day. And of course, you know, there's wear and tear with that. So I think anytime it's sort of like, here's a monkey wrench that we're throwing into that, um, there is going to be that anxiety. And I I think that's really a, a brilliant move to say, let's not try to hide that. Let's get it out in the open because I feel like that automatically brings everybody's stress level down a little bit, even just realizing, oh, I'm not alone in this. Um, there are other people who are worried about making mistakes too, because I, I think, you know, teachers put so much pressure on themselves to be perfect and we are human and everybody in every job makes mistakes sometimes. And I, I, I just think that the teaching profession needs reminding um, of that. So um, this this interview, of course, is part of our free guide that is all about having uh, really establishing community through the process of hosting a teacher book group. And uh, I'm sure the two of you have had experiences like I have, where sometimes it's a great book group conversation, there's intellectual debate, and you walk away with fresh perspective. And then there's other book groups where it's kind of like cricket, 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 I don't know what anybody took away from that. And I think the best book groups really are founded on books that leave us with phenomenal questions, right? Where there's some nuance, there's some gray, it's, there's a little bit of uncertainty and I need to have more conversations with others. Uh, what, are, what are some of the questions that you're hoping educators might leave the experience of reading your book with? Or what are some of the questions that you're hoping, okay, I've put down this book, what do you want them to go and ask of others that they are working with or, or students or admin? Um, I think, I think the book is full of very practical strategies that you can use tomorrow. Um, and that's the feedback that we've received from educators. It's not, and not, it's not just what I think. Um, it is the feedback that we've received. Um, one thing that we mention in the book uh, that I don't think we answer the question. Um, it would maybe it's a sequel, but we talk about the importance of designing engaging learning experiences for students to minimize the management issues in the first place. Um, you know, so much of classroom management with or without technology is about engaging students. And when you have engaged students, like that's your management plan, right? Your management plan is done. Like you, I've just engaged them. So I think, I think a question that I would love an educator to leave our book, you know, read our book and then leave thinking about is how am I going to design learning so that I get the maximum engagement from students? And when I say engagement, I mean like intellectual engagement, engagement in the content, um, not just the fancy tech tool. And uh, another another thing that we we kind of allude to or mention, but don't get deep into because it is more of a mindset and it, and, it, and it's a whole nother book for someone or many books that are out there is the idea that none of your management strategies are going to work if you don't have good relationships with your students. Uh, and just going to the, the culture of a classroom, if students feel cared for, if they feel known, they're gonna, they're gonna learn better uh, because they're safe. And a lot, a lot of that 
comes from feeling like the teacher cares about you and is interested in you. And so we do speak to that a, a little bit uh, about essentially nothing will work if you are the one who like ignores student culture and tells everyone to, you just complain about cell phones all the time and that's all the kids and, and, you're, and you're, you're just living on a different planet. Um, yeah, you're, all these other strategies aren't gonna work because students think you don't know them and care for them and understand their world. So how, so how do you build those relationships? Well, the book isn't about that, but it's just a reminder. So I, I hope people walk away going, yeah, how can I make my classroom um, this place where students feel known, cared for, safe, and, and know that the relationships are important to me, that I'm here for them, I wanna help them, uh, because that will minimize distractions. It will minimize uh, outbursts and, and, and other things that take away from learning. But we don't necessarily say, here's how you develop good relationships in the book. Yeah, you know, and there's kind of bridging what both of you bring up is understanding the better you know your students, the more you'll have an understanding around, you know, the, the reality that engagement can look and sound different from different students. Uh, you know, I remember when I first started out, it took me a little while to realize sometimes that engagement piece is noisy and there is excitement and students want to be, you know, getting up and showing other students things. And that is so different from, you know, my own schooling where it's like the desks are in rows. You are not leaving that chair unless somebody has said so. Um, and it took me a little while to realize, no, I want engagement to have those moments where the classroom is loud and it's noisy and collaboration is noisy and there is movement. Um, but for some students, it's not right. And understanding that for some students, they, you know, I'm an introvert. So I relate with this where I need a little more processing time. I might, you know, need to do some thinking on my own first before I'm doing something collaborative. Um, and I, I think that's the reality too, is really, you know, I'm hoping teachers might leave the book talking about how has our definition, our working definition of engagement shifted. You know, I think for many of us, we went through a schooling process where maybe the teacher didn't necessarily care about engagement. They cared about compliance. And there's some reflection that we need to do in terms of realizing, uh, you know, how has that shifted and, and how can our devices be a part of making that shift? I have to give a shout out to my Mexican students. I had the opportunity from my second classroom teaching job to teach in Mexico. 95% um, of my students were Mexican. The other 5% were international. Um, and that was the biggest learning for me as an educator to shift what engagement looks like because the culture in the school, in Mexico and in the school is one of, is socializing. And if I couldn't find a way to allow students to socialize and talk to one another while learning, I would not have survived. Um, and so that, yeah, I, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that did shift. Okay, like this, this is what they still learned, right? <laughs> um, they were learning, they were talking to each other. And it was the times when I didn't allow that to happen that there was friction. Um, and that I think is the tie back, back to classroom management, right? Like knowing your students, knowing what they need, knowing that the, the introverts 
I'm also one need that extra time and also helping them ask for that. Right. Like, I think that's a classroom management tip. How do we empower students to think about what they need and then ask for it? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so powerful. Again, I, I think when, when we are creating that classroom culture where students know the teacher wants you to be helping each other out, you know, you have the example, I think, especially with technology, there's huge power in, Hey, I don't know everything. You know, we talked about this at the beginning of the interview and and sometimes students come across shortcuts or little hacks that we haven't even thought of. But if you've got that classroom environment set up where it is more collaborative um, you know, we all see ourselves as playing an active part in bringing learning forward. Um, there, there's huge, huge power with that. And that really does spark engagement. Um, so Heather and Patrick, I know, you know, even though we are just in the middle of summer um, in the world of education, we're always thinking about the academic year to come. And uh, I'm guessing that there might be other upcoming opportunities, you know, really in September and beyond for folks to connect with either or both of you, um, you know, if they, if they would like to just sort of expand on some of what we've talked about here and ideas that are shared in your book, what are some ways that educators can connect with you in the coming academic year? Um, because of course, you know, your book starts a conversation. It doesn't necessarily finish it. We are right in the middle of a summer book club right now, um, which will likely be over when you're hearing this sometime in the future. But um, it is something that we are likely to do um, at some point in this next year. So the, the best thing to do would be to join our email list. If you go to our book website, it's cmdigitalage.com. Um, you can sign up for our email list. We don't send too, too much, so we won't spam you. Um, but that's where we'll announce that we're hosting a book club and how you can get involved. Um, and then also just following both of us on Twitter. Um, I'm Heza, H-E-Z-A on Twitter and Patrick is P Green Soup, P-G-R-E-E-N-S-O-U-P, right, Patrick? Did I get it right? All right. You got it. Um, you know, we are always, we are always available, um, on social media to have conversations and, um, do some, yeah, our hashtag is hashtag CM Digital Age. So you can always use our hashtag and we're always watching that, looking to have conversations. So, yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, cause you know, I'm curious and, and I brought this up a little bit earlier. So yeah, great for folks to reach out to you, to dig into, you know, having more conversations about ideas in the books. And I'm wondering, you know, there might be some, some groups of, there might be a coach listening to this episode thinking, I love what you've done as co-authors. I want to take on this challenge with, uh, you know, somebody that I collaborate with on my school. Are you also available for educators who are saying, I'd love to learn more about your process. You know, myself and another educator would also love to co-author a book. Um, do you, do you sort of do any consultancy around that? Or would you be willing to, to touch base with others who are saying, let me learn from uh, the dynamic duo that is Patrick and Heather? Absolutely. Uh, and of course, you could reach us through Twitter or, or contact us through the, the website, which is also cmdigitalage.com. But uh, actually, Heather and Heather's done sessions at educator conferences before on how to get going on a collaborative book like this and really speaking to the, the power of not just taking it on yourself, but working as a team to 
create something that can help others. So yes, we're ready to go and would love to hear from people. Right. And it's fantastic that you said yes, because I realized, you know, I really set you up there by calling you the dynamic (laughs) duo. If you had said no, that would have been really difficult, I think, for us to segue into our final question, Um, which, you know, if, if any of my former principals are listening to this, they know very well that I was always that person saying, hey, can we get 20 copies of this book? Can we get 30 copies of this book? We need to do a teacher book group around this. Um, and I've, I've had amazing principals and school leaders who have always supported that, but rightfully so they'll often say, you know, Tricia, tell me why this book right now, um, you know, dig into a little bit more about, you know, funds are always limited. We have to think about strategic plans, current context, all of those things. So if there's somebody listening and they're thinking, yes, I want to make sure that this book, um, you know, we, we set aside some funds, we add it to our PD library. I want to get 10 or 15 or 20 copies. Um, you know, can you can I do some of the heavy lifting for that person and say, look, here's, here's maybe why you would want to suggest to a school leader um, that this is the book for the context. And this is why it's good for there to be a team conversation around it. Because of course, you know, on any given campus, Lots of teachers are doing reading sometimes in isolation, which is great, but there definitely is a time and a place for us to say, let's have a common text. Let's have a common resource that we're coming together around. Um, so why is this a, a good one for a small community to make sure that they're having conversations about? I think this is a unique time, uh, which I guess we've been saying for the past year and a few months <laughs> with COVID. Um the schools that I've been talking to over the past year and a half, many of them significantly increased the number of devices in their schools because of COVID. Um, you know, they had to find a way to get access to students. So they found devices, they've figured out, you know, a lot of schools have are now one-to-one or effectively one-to-one that weren't before. Um, so I think, I think that answers the question, like why, why this book and why now, um, you know, there are more devices than ever in our schools. And because of the craziness of the past year, we haven't been able to sit and have the reflective conversation about what does it mean for in our classroom, right? Like we've been focused on what are we doing next week? Are we going to be online? Are we going to be in person? Right. And I think with a lot of schools going back in person this fall, it's a prime time, uh, a great opportunity to have those reflective conversations. And the, the good thing about doing it in a group is that you, it's not just about what strategies are in the book. It's about what works with my students and you know, your students best. And often your students are the same students a colleague in your school has. So let's have a conversation together about what works in our cultural context, what works with the kinds of students that we have, um, and share best practice. I mean, the, the best, I mean, all the ideas in the book come from working with the teachers in our school. I mean, so the best ideas that you're going to get are going to be from people that you work with. You know, we, we like to say the smartest person in the room is the room. So bring the room together and have a shared read. And we actually have a number of places in the book where we'll say, actually, this would be best if you got some agreement on it across a grade level or a division or what. So, I, I mean, that's another way to appeal to some administrators is to say there, there's sections in here that we should probably read together and then 
collaborate on a solution such as a digital citizenship agreement that everyone can point to and say, this is what all of our students are gonna agree to. This is, these are the norms. These are the behaviors we expect. Uh, you know, some people are gonna wanna start talking about a discipline plan and Heather and I are very clear in the book that that's not what this is. Uh, schools probably already have that anyway. This is more the proactive side of how do we stay away from having to use our discipline plan? And I think that's actually the other way to approach an administrator about this is, is to <laughs> uh, harness the fear because <laughs> the, the fear is that this will be a disaster. A bunch of teachers that are fearful of what's going to happen are going to result to trying to control everything. Um, and people aren't at their best when they're afraid. So, so rather than throw people into this new environment where they're fearful, how about let's have a proactive conversation about some great ways to meet our modern learners where they're at, use these devices as a learning tool, have language where we talk about these devices as a very powerful learning tool, not this thing that we need to control and banish and lock up and have rules around. And I think that's really what this could do. This book, this conversation that you, you would have as a school, if you looked at this book together, would you'd avoid the disaster that could happen in classrooms or across a whole division or a whole school if you just let people operate by themselves and in a fearful way. Yeah, you know, that kind of echoes what you were saying about even the learning, you know, in terms of co-authoring a book, right? When we do something together, it's always going to be better than if we approach it as sort of an army of one. And, you know, I have found there's huge power in listening to others in terms of why they've come to see, ah, you know, this is, you know, policy is maybe not the right word, but this is the approach I take in the classroom with using device X or app, whatever, um, you know, when we're having that kind of conversation in concert, it gives you the chance to really either affirm what you believe to be true, because, you know, debate, I think is really important there. And listening to others to sort of test out our opinions and get other perspectives, because, you know, teaching, sometimes you can really be in a silo. Um, it's one of those professions where you're not always seeing other practitioners in, in action. So having conversations around this are really, really valuable. And I think your book is a great tool to really spark that conversation and that, that necessary dialogue. And I'm just wondering if, if either of you wants to talk a little bit about the parent caretaker piece here, because, you know, Patrick, you bring up that idea of fear for educators. And I know in the parent caretaker community, there's real anxiety around that as well, uh, you know, especially parents and caretakers of, you know, preteens who are just coming into that environment where social media is going to, you know, start to play a part in, in, in their lives. Um, you know, I, I know sometimes there can be some real fear around how do I navigate this for my child, you know, for the young, young folks living under my roof. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit about how this book also can be a resource for that audience? Yeah, I'll jump in, Heather, and, and make sure you get your point across as well. But um, I, one of the things in the book is a, it, it's a handout that you can send home with parents. And ideally, you do this as a whole school. But if you're not being supported in that way, you can still support parents of the 30 kids that you teach, or 120 or whatever it is, 
by even providing this open-ended document. It, it basically is an agreement for the parent and the student of how we're going to take care of this device in our home. And it, you know, it's, it's open-ended because as educators, we don't wanna make the rules at someone's home, but we do wanna empower parents with a strategy of how they could <laughs> decrease some conflict in their home. And that's gonna be by setting up some boundaries and, and having some agreements. And so, so we have, I think it's just called a student-parent laptop agreement for home. And it's really generic and you could edit it however you want. But it says things like, where may the student use the laptop in the home? Because maybe uh, in the hallway, in the stairwell is a bad place. It's a place where it might get damaged. Whereas uh, at the kitchen counter, it's not going to. Or maybe that's the worst place because you've got three siblings that are tipping over water and spilling milk all the time. You don't want that on your laptop. So, but, but it opens up conversations and it really sets the stage for parents, you are in charge. However, maybe you want to engage your child in a conversation and come to solutions together rather than just tell them what to do. So it really sets up as we've been saying, I don't know, five times now in this conversation, we can come to a better solution if we work together. And so we encourage parents to uh, talk with their students because students are going to say, yeah, maybe I'm not allowed to have this in my bedroom because I'm going to keep checking it all night long. <laughs> yes, that's correct. We're not going to have it in your bedroom. Uh, but it's going to be better received if those folks can work together to come up with those conversations. So that's one thing. Um, Commonsense Media also has a version of the parent-student hmm. agreement form. We have one on our website, um, but there's also Commonsense Media also has one um, that can be modified. And I guess to add to that, I would also say you need to revisit that at least once a year. Um, you know, especially at that preteen age, students, you know, ch their children becoming adults, they're, I mean, every six months, they're like a new person um, with new needs and new, you know, they need new expectations. So I, you know, revisit that if, if a, an expectation that you've created together doesn't work anymore, revisit that and change it. Um, and I, I think another way that educators can partner with parents is by being, you know, keeping the lines of communication open and, and being really transparent about how the device is getting used. Um, I know one of the fears that we heard from parents and going one-to-one, -one, I think this, this was more prevalent in the elementary school, but I, I also heard it in middle school is that, you know, you're giving my child this device that they're just going it, to, it's a babysitter, right? Because Sometimes that is what devices are at home. And I think there was fear that that's all they were going to be at school. And so we had to be really clear and communicate to parents, no, this is how this device is getting used. It's getting used as a creation device. It's a data collection tool and, and being, you know, really transparent about sharing, here's what your students made with this device so that parents and guardians can start to see, oh, okay, this, this is what this can do. Um, and that also opens up a lot of opportunities for how a device gets used at home and, and opening up that conversation of what does it mean to have a quality activity on a device? Um, yeah. and, and Heather, th those are great examples. And I, I think, I know, I know there's a lot of people who might be hearing this who are thinking, yeah, but my job isn't to teach the parents, it's to teach the kids. And so I, I did wanna just 
kind of toss out this idea that you might want to shift your mindset there. Because I know that even before devices, any, any time that I took to engage with parents helped the kids and, and, and potentially helped me help the kids and certainly helped in any case, if the kid went home and told, you know, complained about me, the teacher, if I'd already been communicating with the, the um, parent, the parent was much more likely to, you know, start in a positive way with, you know, hey, my kid came home and had said they had this issue rather than just be angry, right? So my, my, my point is anytime that you are kind of sharing resources with parents or kind of engaging in this conversation, it is, it is valuable and it is, it is worthwhile. And so I'll give one specific example of that. Let's say you uh, spent some time with your class coming up with classroom norms around these devices. And, and, and you, you came up and, you know, you worked on that for a day, which is, of course, also building relationships, also creating classroom a culture of care and letting kids know that they have some ownership in this. Uh, but what, excuse me, when you're done, why not take a photo of that poster on the wall and send it home? However, your way of communicating with parents is, whether it's an email list or a, a blog or whatever you're doing, why not say, hey, here's what our group of learners came up with together about how they're going to take care of their device or how we're going to uh, critique each other in a way that pushes thinking forward, but doesn't hurt feelings or, you know, and I would also say uh, that parents are going to see that. And even though you're not being explicit, they'll do what Heather just said. They might take on, oh, maybe I could talk with my kid about the rules instead of just telling them what it is because you're modeling for parents and, and they do need some help. So maybe shift that thinking a little bit there. And it's such a relevant conversation for parents and caretakers, you know, as well. I, I, you're having me think a little bit about a few years ago, I did a project with a group of 10th graders where we experimented for two weeks. We were just going to adjust our relationship with our technology. So there were all these different challenges that students could choose from. Um, an example of one was what's, you know, the app on your phone that you you, you kind of have that self-awareness of, I know I spend a little too much time on this app. Like I have that feeling for two weeks, it's coming off your phone. You can put it back on your phone after two weeks, if you would like. So that was one of the challenges. Um, and the, the parent caretaker feedback that I had on that, there were, you know, quite a few parents that said, I'm going to take this on with you. Like we will do it as a household, as a family. And it was really interesting and, you know, interesting for me as well, because we also live, learn, and work in a world where we have to be thinking about our own device management. Um, you know, my, my wife and I have had a, a rule for years where we don't have phones in the bedroom. Like we, we know if the last thing we're looking at before we try to go to sleep is anything that's on that device, it's going to be a lot harder to fall asleep. Our quality of sleep is much, much better with that, that rule, um, you know, being applied. And I'm wondering just a sort of a parting gift for listeners. I know sometimes summer is a great time for us to reflect on practice and our relationships with, you know, tech and the things that we work with. Um, do either or both of you kind of have something that, um, you know, you've shifted in your own personal management of devices that you think this has been a really valuable thing for myself in my personal or professional life? Um, or again, just, you know, with my own 
family's practice around devices, anything that you would recommend, you know, and I always love saying it's a suggestion, maybe just try it. It doesn't have to be forever. Like in the example I gave, just give it two weeks. You can go back to the way it was if you're really unhappy with that, but any suggestion you would leave listeners with in terms of try this out. Like this is something that has, has been really worthwhile for me personally. For me, I think the most valuable thing I've ever done for myself is manage the notifications on my phone. Um, and I think that was a process. It wasn't an overnight thing. Um, and it's still a process because sometimes I'll download a new app and I will let it notify me of things. And then I realize it's annoying and I don't want it and I change it. But I'm very conscious about what I will allow my phone to buzz me about. So I will allow phone calls, SMS, text messages, and Google chat. I will allow that because I use that for a lot of like, you know, my, my family chat and stuff. Um, but that said, if there's a Google chat group that I'm part of that is a little bit overactive, I, I will mute that specific chat. And I know that I will only go look at it when I'm on my computer and I'm wanting to look at it. So I don't allow any social media to buzz my phone. Um, I don't think that there's, oh, I, I do allow the New York Times to send me uh, quietly, no dinging, um, some things. So I just, I'm really conscious about what I will allow Notify to, to be on my phone because what I found was I, when I allowed email or Facebook to ding my phone, it's like, well, I don't actually want to check that right now, but because it made a noise, I look at it and I check it. So now I've been distracted from whatever I'm doing, whether it was a conversation, which I think is incredibly rude, um, or whatever else I was focused on, even if I was by myself, I don't want email or social media to dictate what I'm doing. I want to choose how I spend my time. And this, this has helped me incredibly. I love that example, Heather, because I think it really is, you know, it puts that question into play of who's in control. Is the phone in control of you or are you in control of the phone? Um, and you reminded me of one of the other student challenges I did where, you know, you mentioned you think that's, it's really rude, right? For somebody to get distracted by their phone when they're in conversation. And students will often point out to me, like, that's a generational thing. We don't feel that way. And one of the challenges was... Anytime you're at lunch or you're having a chat with a friend, you're going to put your phone away and just see what the, what the conversation dynamic feels like. And it was really interesting because I had teenagers who, you know, constantly told me like, no, you know, Miss Trisha, that's, you know, it's just because you're old, you feel that way. We don't feel that way about it. Um, and they realized, wow, like I kind of felt like I was able to focus on what other people were saying. Like I was kind of more in the moment. It sounds cheesy, but um it is a really interesting challenge. And I love that you brought that up because it's a simple tweak that you can make that I think it really does reduce anxiety, right? Yes, that's exactly what it does. The, the <laughs> dinging. Yeah, I just can't handle it. <laughs> well, I'm going to share two tips unless you cut me off here, Tricia. But uh, the first is a kind of a personal one. And the second one is for families. So first... <clears throat> get an analog alarm clock. The phone can do so many things, but if it, if you're setting your alarm right before bed, you're right there where other things can get in your brain. 
oh, what notifications did I get? Or what, or, or let me just read this article really quickly. And, and like you're saying, I, we don't have phones in, in the bedroom. Well, an analog alarm clock can solve that for you because now you're, you're, you're setting your alarm on this thing that that's just what it does. It wakes you up in the morning. The other thing that solves is it in the morning when you pick up or you, you turn off the alarm, you're not going straight to your work day or something that's going to throw you off. You can ease into your morning and you're going to be a healthier person by not reading your email or your messages or whatever right away. The other one though, this is more for families and it's just a little simple change. In our family, we call it speak your activity. And there's two components to this one as well. We don't call it the iPad. Dad, can I be on the iPad? Well, no, you can't be on the iPad because I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're just, you know, for, for 10 hours. Now, if you say, Dad, can I Zoom with grandma? Yes, that's the activity. We're talking, we're not talking about as at a device. We're talking about is what you're trying to do with it. Dad, can I com- compose some music? Yes. Now, if, if my child said, can I be on the iPad for eight hours straight? The answer is no. <laughs> but if he says, dad, can I compose some music for an hour? And then after that hour, he says, dad, can I Zoom with grandma for an hour? And then you know, he says, dad, can I make a stop motion uh, movie for five hours? which by the way is script writing and animation and filmmaking and storytelling. Absolutely, yes, my, I want my kid doing those things. Those are the activities I want them engaging in. So the answer is yes, when you speak the activity. But the other thing that is, is when we do that on our phones too. Like if I walk into the room, my, we tell each other what we're doing on the screen. Dad, I'm reading a comic. Or if it's my wife, I'm just quickly answering your sister uh, about what groceries I need to pick up for her, right? So, so that you're not feeling like people are always in their phones because they might not be in their phone. They might be Skyping with grandma or they might be organizing, a, you know, not, good, not going to the grocery store because they're sending the neighbor and they actually get to spend more time with you. But it looks like they're ignoring you in their phone. So we speak what we're doing when we're in our devices so that uh, other people know that it's a quality activity. So by the way, if I ever said, I'm playing Candy Crush while my kid's trying to tell him me about his day, like you could imagine I would say, oh my gosh, I'm playing Candy Crush while my kid's trying to tell me I'm a terrible parent. And you'd stop doing it. So folks, speak the activity, stop calling it an iPad or a phone and say what you're doing. I love that. And, you know, Patrick, that really kind of gets to what I think has been the essence of our conversation, you know, start a conversation, have a dialogue about what's happening with these devices, because in that example, you know, if that conversation is happening in a classroom, like, you know, that also opens up the opportunity for, oh, cool. That's what you're working on. Can I join you? Can you show me how? And those are the conversations that we, you know, we know sparks further learning, so there's real power in that. I think I'm going to try out that that tip uh, with my wife because, hey, that's we've had some arguments with that with like, hey, what are you doing? I need and you know my wife has been like, I'm ordering our firewood. You know, I'm not scrolling through Twitter like you do for endless amounts of time. So I love that. Speak what you're doing. Um, that that's a great great tip. I'm definitely going to take that on. Heather and Patrick, thank you so much for giving up some of your time. Uh, The link to all of the resources you've heard us talk about are, of course, in the show notes. 
check out the book from Heather and Patrick. Uh, and if you're interested in continuing a conversation around their book or about ways to co-author your own, reach out to either of them. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shifting Our Schools podcast. As we wrap up, we have a special message from your regular host, the one and only Jeff Udick. Thank you, Trisha, for scheduling and chatting with these amazing educational authors for our audience. I'm Jeff Udick, and while Trisha has been giving me a break from my podcasting duties, I've been able to spend this time working on some new keynotes and workshops for the start of this coming school year. I've been honored to have delivered start of the year keynotes and PD days for audiences around the world. And as much as you are all excited to welcome students back into your schools and classrooms, I'm excited to get back in front of educators and thought leaders. I pride myself on customizing keynotes that are interactive, inspiring, and ignite meaningful conversations at your school or district. Head over to shiftingschools.com and select the on offer tab to learn more about what I've been working on for this year's keynotes. These keynotes, of course, are the starting point. From there, I work with school leaders to create a custom-made keynote for your community. Let me know how I can support you. And thank you again, Trisha. And until next time, I'll see you on the network. Did this week's story inspire you? Are you looking for a conversation on a specific topic? Reach out to the Shifting Schools team through any of our social media channels linked in our show notes. Shifting Our Schools podcast is a proud production of the Shifting Schools team. For more resources to support you in shifting your school, be sure to explore our collection of free ready-to-roll guides available at shiftingschools.com.